0: If you are uh, new or kind of newish to us, or if you've been away for a while, uh, we're in a series at the moment called Life to the Full, because I don't know if you've heard, but that's what Jesus is about. Uh, And that's what Jesus wants to bring to your life, to my life, to our lives together, life in all of its fullness. Uh, And we're spending a few weeks thinking about these verses uh, together. Uh, so, if you'd like to, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10, uh, a passage that's going to become really familiar to us, especially if you're in uh, small groups as well and studying this passage in small groups. Uh, but, John chapter 10, these are Jesus' his words to us today. I tell you the truth the person who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, because his, feet, his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run from him, because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. Person runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep, but I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to to lay it down and authority to take it up again because this command I received from my Father. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Ways in which you speak to us. We thank you today for the gift of your word, and even in that short passage, we can hear of your passion for us to understand, of the language that you use, the pictures that you chose in order to communicate for us just just your heart towards us, the relationship with you that you came to begin, to establish, and to grow. And we thank you that you're present as we gather today in your name to explain it to us by your spirit among us. And so, Father, we pray that you would move among us as we listen carefully to your voice. We want to be those who will not follow a stranger, but those who come to recognize your voice and yours alone, the authentic passion of the shepherd. So help us, Lord, to tune in, not just that we might know it here, but that we might recognize it, God, tomorrow and This week and in the course of our lives, that we might be those who follow well, who follow closely, who follow deliberately, who follow passionately the direction, the provision, the voice of the shepherd. So we dare to ask you today, would you speak to us afresh and lead and guide and guard our lives by the power of your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, how many people here are runners? There's a few runners around. If you're a runner today, I'm going to tell you a horror story, so apologies uh, for that. Last Sunday, of course, was the Cardiff Half Marathon, or if you're a runner, I think you just call it the Cardiff Half, so I'll call it the Cardiff Half Marathon. Uh, and uh, yep. Yeah big event uh, here in Cardiff, but I was reading recently a psychologist who writes a blog uh, described this passion to get fit and to stretch herself, have new experiences, so uh, she decides she wants to run, she's not a runner, but she wants to run seven marathons over seven continents. I don't know if anybody here has done that? Not recently? No, okay. Unfortunately for me, most marathons are on a Sunday. So uh, it would be difficult uh, to be able to do it. I don't know why they're laughing uh, down the front. Uh, so she decides, I'm going to run seven marathons, seven continents. And she sh- shares this with a friend, and the friend says, OK, well, I'll, I'll join you. I'll do all the training, and I'll come with you. Uh, so the very first marathon they go to is in Prague, uh, so they get all their stuff sorted, they, they get there, they're excited uh, about doing this together, uh, and then there's this moment when the day arrives, and they get themselves to the starting point, and there's not much going on. There's a little bit of a crowd, but there are hardly any runners there, and the activity is really calm and quiet. So they think, oh, maybe we're, maybe we're a bit early. And so they go into their bag and pull out all the paperwork, and they think, well, maybe we're half an hour or an hour early, and they realize they're half an hour late, and the race has already started. So they've traveled all this way. They don't want to do nothing, and they know that their own time is going to be, is it click time, they call it, looking at the runners? We'll go with that. Click timed? great. I may have just made that up. But they know it's going to be time, so they know they're going to get their own time for the race. So they just start running. And as they're running along, they're talking to each other about how this could have happened and whether they should do it. But it's, you know, they've traveled all the way, so they're they're doing this together. And then they realize that some of the crowd that have come to watch the race have started to pack away some of the barriers from the road. So they don't even know where they're meant to be going. So they're running along, and they manage to get themselves completely lost. Another having this conversation about, oh, do we just keep running the length of a marathon and then just tell ourselves we've done it? But they really want to finish because, as you know, if you've done one, you get a medal at the end, I'm told. So, uh, so they, they keep on going. Eventually, they realize that the whole rest of the race uh, has run round the corner and is, is going in the opposite direction. So they decide, a split-second decision, they decide, well, we'll just catch up, we'll just f- uh, follow in with the rest of the race. Now, the crowd see this and immediately decide they've, they've cheated. And so they start shouting and, and booing. Now, it was in a foreign language, but the tone was obvious that the crowd were not happy with this. And so they're running along, and she describes this mental energy Uh, that she's got a fight to want to try and explain to people as she's running a marathon. No, actually, you know, we started late, and it was you guys clearing the barrier, but you you can't explain that to a whole crowd that are doing. Some have taken photos, they found out later their images were already shared uh, online before the race was was over. Uh, And so they decide as they're running together, when we've finished, we'll get our medals, but we won't put them on, We'll go back to the hotel room and get the map, which tells us where we should have gone, and then we'll walk the bit that we should have done, and then we'll, we'll put the medals on. But it's, she says that it got her thinking about how you respond when people make assumptions about you, make judgment calls about a decision or a choice that you've made. Now, you don't have to be a runner to have experienced this. And She writes this. I knew for the first time just how painful it was to be both known and unknown at the same time. Known at some level, because our desperate choice was seen and shared by others, but at a deeper level, unknown, because my reasons were and would remain misunderstood. She describes an experience of being surrounded by people, Surrounded by runners who shared her passion. By, surrounded by a crowd and yet feeling suddenly desperately alone. Desperately small. Desperately judged. Known and unknown at the same time. I wonder if you've had that experience in, in your life when you're going through a situation and you make a choice. Sometimes people don't have to say anything, they just have to look at you. Known and yet unknown. Sometimes there's a voice in us that just wants to scream, doesn't it? You don't know me. You've not walked in these shoes, you've not faced these choices, you don't know my reasons, you don't Know me. Unknown. There's another side to that as well. The truth is, as as human beings, there's parts of us that we do not want others to know. Choices that we make on a daily basis, that we would much rather remain private and secret. Uh, There's a, a, a book by a guy called Timothy Keller. Incredible book called the meaning of marriage Uh, if you were on the um, the blessed course you heard about this last Sunday So excuse me for just repeating this but he talks about marriage in this way says often when he does marriage preparation uh, There's the couple that come to meet him and they talk through the wedding service But also the Christian meaning of marriage and he says there's two people there But really and truly he says there's probably about six people in the room There's the man himself There's the person that he thinks he is, then there's the person that she thinks he is, and then there's the bride-to-be, and the person that she thinks she is, and the person that he thinks she is. And pretty soon they're going to make this commitment to live and to love and to learn together, and somewhere down the line they'll see how clear and real and true those visions of each other were, and they will have to make a decision. Can I stay committed? Can I keep loving? Will I stay faithful? Because until then, you don't really know the person. He writes in the book this, that to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. It's true, isn't it? There might be people who who love us, but they don't really know us. So there's there's a level of comfort, but inside there's still a voice, yeah, but you don't know. It's interesting, isn't it, how many people struggle with celebrity? Because with fame comes being known at a certain level, but it's actually deeply unsatisfying. because people don't really know you. They might think they do. So being loved but not known is superficial. Being known and not loved is our greatest fear. For some people, knowledge is power, isn't it? And once they know, you're never going to forget it. Once they know you're always that mistake, just waiting to happen again. And if they can give you a look, if they can make a comment, if they can keep you feeling that, they will. Being known, but not loved. That's why we dance around letting people really in to our lives. But then he says, but being fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. See, when I decide not to really let people in, not to really share what I'm struggling with, I'm denying myself this deeper expression of, of love and of commitment and the intimacy and family together to be fully known And truly loved. It's like being loved by God. We've been thinking about this thing that Jesus talks about. Living life to the full. And as he's starting to unpack this and explain it to them, he says this. The watchman opened the gate for him. And the sheep listened to his voice. He calls his own sheep out by name. And leads them out causes sheep out by name. Now you've got one of these, you've got a name, uh, and I've, I've got a name, maybe if you're new or, or newish to church, there's not many people who, who know your name, and we can solve that really quickly, we can share names with each other, uh, and yet somehow names become associated with the person, don't they? Uh, we've got a, a dog, a chocolate Labrador, and we decided to call her Georgie reasons I won't go into now. There is a little story, but we'll tell you about that some other time. Um, but it's impossible now to distinguish her from her name. And people ask me, do I love having a dog? I'm like, well, yes, I do like having a dog, but it, it's Georgie that I love. You know, it's a bit like when people say, do you love having kids? You think, well, of course not, but I love my kids, you know. Sometimes it's impossible, isn't it, to separate the person from their name. And that's a very Hebrew concept, that somehow the name captures the essence or the authority of a person. So when Jesus says he calls his sheep up by name, he's saying something very precious here. See, if I was to meet you for the first time today, and we spoke for a while, one of the first things perhaps we might do is is share each other's names, and then we'd get to know each other a little bit. We'd find something to talk about together, wouldn't we? We'd find a common interest, and we'd chat away about that for a while. But here's the thing. Jesus knew your name before he called you. He knew you before he invited you into life in, in all of its fullness. He knew the good, the bad, and the ugly. He calls you by name. Some of you might be wondering, how can God call me by name? How can God uh, know uh, my name? I don't know if anybody here needs a job at the moment, but uh, apparently there's a job going for at Sandricum House, uh, King Charles, as we're now getting used to calling him, is looking for a new shepherd. I don't know if anybody uh, has got any experience in this area, uh, but they're advertising at the moment for somebody to look after the king's sheep. Uh, now, the, um, the job description is very, very detailed. It's very, very long. Uh, I thought I'd pull out a few little bits of it here. Sandrickham Farm requires a skilled shepherd to join our small livestock team. The ideal candidate will be able to uphold the highest standards of animal welfare, because these are the king's sheep. It says later on about joining the, the small team, uh, there's about 6,000 acres uh, on this land and about 3,000 sheep to look after. You'd have to have your own working dogs. I've got a dog, but she doesn't really work, so uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, that there's one candidate already who's, who's applied. But who's, who feels qualified? to look after the king's sheep. Apparently they're fed by, I think, is it forage-only nutrition? Uh, so it's a, a highly like skilled diet that you've got to prepare for them. These aren't just any sheep. They're the king's sheep. And today as we come to God today as, as ordinary and as small and at times as inadequate as we feel, Jesus says here in this passage, I'm not sending a hired hand to guard you, to guide your life. I am the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. See, if I'm trying to sell my house, I can dream up any price I want to, whack it on, but ultimately it's what people will pay for it that shows the the value of it. If people won't pay the the price I put on it, it doesn't matter the price that this shepherd puts on his sheep. I lay down my life, not just for the sheep, but that I might call each one by name. He knows you, knows your essence, knows your story, knows who you are, he calls you by name don't know if you, anyone can identify this star constellation. The plough, yeah, or? Very good. Or? The big dip. Yeah, lots of different names, but we can basically work out there. It's kind of like a saucepan shape, isn't it? That's, that's what we know we're looking for. And once you know that shape, once you know that, that constellation, I don't know about you, I, I find myself when I'm looking up at the sky looking for those patterns, uh, those things that I know. What, what about this one? Anybody recognize this one? Orion or? Sometimes called the hunter as well, sometimes. Uh, now, we draw it like this. Uh, I've kind of tilted it slightly to fit it on the screen. Uh, but actually, you could draw it much bigger. And there's, apparently, there's a bow and arrow as well. And there's a back arm that goes out. And he's kind of pointing, I think, he's at, the, at the big bear. Uh, and we love it, don't we, when we can look up at the sky. And we can see these things and, and recognize them and name them. Now, I'm told that there are about a septillion stars. Is that a new word for you or is a new word for me when I looked it up? It's one followed by 27 zeros. That's how many stars there are in, in the known galaxy they think. Interestingly, every time you go and check it, it seems like there's more as they keep pointing telescopes at, at different bits and zooming in further. Uh, there's more stars than you can begin to possibly fathom. And yet the Bible says this. He heals the brokenhearted binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls each one by name. If God knows a septillion names and can point to each one and name them, then this tiny planet with a mere eight billion on is a walk in the park. He knows each one by name. And this same God of this vast, glorious, beautiful creation is the same God, it says here, who binds up the brokenhearted. At one and the same time, he's able to hold together the entire cosmos and bind up our hearts. He knows you. He knows you by name. The watchman opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls each by name and leads them out. Now, how, how deep does this knowledge go? Because, you know, my name is only one, one part of me. It's probably one of the least interesting things there is to know about me. So, he knows my name, but, but what else does he know? Well, Jesus is really clear here. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. By the Father here, he's talking about God the Father. Just as Jesus knows the Father. I and mean, that's why Jesus came, wasn't it? To reveal the, the true heart of the Father to us. Throughout history, there's been this unfolding, ongoing revelation of God. But then we get to Jesus. Uh, And John writes about him that no one's ever seen God. So everything that's come before has been sketches and notes and searching and longing. But he came so that we could look him in the eyes. So that he could have a name and a face and a way. He came to reveal the heart of the Father to us. You know, somebody once put it this way, that Jesus is perfect theology. Because if it's not in Jesus, it's not of God. Not fully, not fully revealed. That's what he came to do, is to reveal the Father. He knows the Father intimately. He says, just as I know the Father, I know my sheep. And that's what he invites us into. And my sheep know me. Jesus wants to be known by us. At that level. At that place. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know him as a shepherd. So that when we're walking through life wondering where the next place is to rest, we're wondering where we're going to be fed, how we're going to be nurtured. Those points in our lives where we're asked questions that we do not have an answer to. Those points that we reach where we think, should I go this way with my life? Is it right for me to explore this? Should I go forward with this person? So that we would know him in those moments as a shepherd. To know his voice. Saying this way. Come this way. Follow me. He wants us to know him in that way. See, sometimes the the picture of the sheep and the shepherd can be quite an abstract thing for us, I guess. Uh, We live lives that are quite removed from that sort of agricultural picture, don't we? We can assume sometimes that a shepherd and a sheep is just kind of like a headmaster in a school. It's just somebody that stands and looks over this thing. My dad, for the last part of his ministry, ministered down in Pembrokeshire. uh, Two churches just outside of Halford West. Uh, And uh, in one place, uh, Tom, the treasurer, uh, was a farmer and had sheep on on his farm. Not many, because he was reaching retirement age, but he had some sheep. Uh, And one day, Dad popped round to see Tom, uh, and it was lambing season. And so Tom calls him into the barn and says, come and watch, come and watch. And he says the excitement on his face, every single time a new lamb was born, And then this moment where they talk together about, now what are we going to call this one? And he said, Tom could lead you out onto the farm and name each sheep. I mean, sheep basically look pretty much similar to me, but he was able to name each one because he'd been there at the birth. He'd walked through it, its life with it. When it was injured, he'd he'd picked it up and taken it to the vet. When it needed medication, he'd fed it. When there was food that needed providing for it, he'd, he'd been there. And Jesus chooses this image to describe this image of our relationship with him. I want to be there when you're broken, if you'll let me. I want to find you when you wander you let me. I want to feed you when you're hungry if you let me. I want to know you and I want you to know me. He knows you. Do you know him? Do you know him in that way? Because I tell you my, my instinct often is, is when I'm broken. When something hits my life that is too big for me and I'm wounded somehow, the image for self pre- the, the, the the instinct for self preservation is so strong. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And all the time he's waiting. Will you let me lift you? Will you let me heal you? Will you let me feed you? The times when I get so comfortable with something, so familiar. And he comes and says, it's time to move. It's time to go. We've gotten all that we will out of this pasture. What was once green and fertile is now eaten and barren and gone. It's time to go. The instinct to stay where I know. But see, he knows me. He knows what I need, and He wants me to know Him in that way. I wonder, has anybody here got a tattoo? You'd be brave, I know, to admit it, but has anyone? No. It's one of the things that people often do cover up, isn't it? Tattoos. Sorry, was there a a confession? No, you can't point at somebody. I didn't ask for to be singled out. Sorry, known and unknown, Laura, isn't it? Tattoos, it it strikes me, if you're going to get a tattoo. I mean, I'm told it's a particularly painful procedure. uh, And if you want it removed or sort of drawn over or hidden somehow, it's an equally painful procedure. So if you're going to get a tattoo, right, it's going to be something that you know you're going to love for the rest of your life. Uh, It's not like, you know, painting that you stick up on the wall and then replace. It's going to be with you unless you want to undergo a very painful procedure for a long time. I was reading a book by um, an author I enjoy who said two of his favorite quotes uh, he's had, get this, tattooed on his biceps so that when he's working out he can reflect uh, on these or when he's swimming he, he, like, you know, it's, it's always with him, it's always there. There's an amazing verse in the heart of Isaiah. He's talking about God's knowledge of us. He asks a question, can a mother... Forget the child that she bore. And then he says, well, she may forget, but I'll never forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You are always with me. This is a permanent thing. The word that's used there to engrave in the Hebrew means to chisel out of stone. It's a word that they uh, used to to describe the laws that were written that could not be changed, engraved on the palms of my hands. And of course, for the early church, as they wrestle with the story of Jesus and the cross of Jesus, uh, the one who was perfect and holy and true, who is nailed to a cross, these words come to take on a new significance. We have a shepherd with nail-pierced hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So that those situations that you face that challenge this relationship with me, those things that happen and you wonder, God, now this has happened. Can, can I still know you? Can you still know me? Can you still use me? Can you still love me? There will be a place where it is written forever, engraved in the palms of my hands, pierced hands. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know. The same Isaiah went on to write these words about Jesus, that he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The nail pierced, empty hands of the Savior show that place where the punishment that we deserve... we can wander if we want to. All of us, like sheep, not some of us, all of us have wandered. And you can wander from the flock if you want to. He's a good shepherd, but it comes at a cost. If you want to walk away, God will allow you to. But not just for now, but, but for forever. And across the gulf between where we are and where God is, this arm reaches to us with the scars of sacrificial love. It says, come home, come home. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. When Jesus says we are engraved, he doesn't just mean in a temporary way. He holds us. And sometimes we wrestle with it. Sometimes we squirm. But they're in the grip of grace. Fully known and fully loved. We're just going to pray together, but before we do, uh, there's a, a German pastor called uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, an incredible guy. He's, um, when the Second World War was, was kicking off, a whole bunch of pastors were given free passage to other parts of Europe and, uh, and the world. And he said, how, how can I leave when my people are suffering, when my people are struggling? How can I return and rebuild this place if I haven't been part? of the dismantling of it, if I haven't known that pain. And during that time he wrote a book called Life Together. It's an incredible book uh, about fellowship together. And in that book he says this, it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth. Says you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner that you are, to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to others as if you were without sin. In the presence of love, you can dare to be a sinner. Some of us miss out on this relationship that Jesus wants to have with us because we don't dare to be a sinner. Don't dare to come as we are try sort to of bandage ourselves up and do things that might be impressive or successful and he wants us to come as we are and are his nail pierced hands his tender personal care so I wonder if you'll just take a moment to pray with me today and I'd love you just to think about where Jesus is for you right now. He wants you to know his voice leading you. How, how loud is that voice right now or how distant is it? Can you see where he is or is he far away? How much of your life is he involved in? And how much are you quite happy doing on your own? Because Lord Jesus, all of us could be nearer. All of us could be closer. And maybe for someone here today, you've never actually asked Jesus to be your shepherd. Well, today could be your day when you start following that voice. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer and invite you to personalize it in your heart before God. That Lord God, I thank you that you want to be part of my life. That you were there at my birth. You made me in love. I confess that I have failed you. I've hurt others and I've hurt you. And Lord Jesus, today I thank you for laying down your life for me. For taking the place and the punishment that I deserved. That I might know your peace and your forgiveness. Life in all of its fullness. And so before the presence of love today, I dare to be a sinner. To be who I am. No mask. No pretense. Just me. And I thank you that you wait with nail-pierced hands. To welcome me forgive me and lead me and if you've prayed that today we'd love to celebrate with you please let, just let someone know so that we can be praying with you this is not the end of a journey it's the start of one and we'd love to walk together in this And Lord, for all of us here today, I pray, Lord, that you would increase our capacity to know you and increase our capacity to know your love that is stronger and richer and deeper than any guilt or shame or blame that we carry. Any label or look that we've been given pales into insignificance and the sheer dimensions of your love. Lord, would you open our hearts today to realize the greatness of you and the greatness of your love. I thank you, Lord, for those of us who've placed our lives in your hands, that there is nothing that can snatch us away. There's nothing that can separate us on the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you more.